Well, good morning again. Uh, this morning we are going to continue hearing God's Word from 1 Peter. The last two weeks we've been in a pretty challenging passage in 1 Peter, 1 Peter 3, 18-22. And what we tried to do is pay attention, pay careful attention to what God was saying to us in that passage, but to keep in mind the main themes of Peter's letter, which from the beginning have been both the suffering and the holiness that come from being united to Jesus Christ. And it's back to those main themes that we turn in our passage today. This is 1 Peter 4, 1-7. through Peter continues what he said to us in verses 18-22 to of chapter 3 about Jesus' victory over sin and death and Satan. But today he brings us back to the suffering we experience as exiles in this world and the way that holiness relates to that suffering. And so God is going to challenge us today to live in light of the new age that Jesus has inaugurated, but He's also going to encourage us. He's going to encourage us by telling us that this age will not always look the way that it does right now. But before we hear these things from God's Word, let's ask for His help. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read Your Holy Word I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know your Son, Jesus Christ, better. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills, so that we may hear your word and believe it. Let us not simply be hearers of your word, but doers also. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is 1 Peter chapter 4. Verses 1 through 7. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. This is the Word of the Lord. As we look at this passage today, we're going to see three things as we work our way through it. First, in verses 1 and 2, we're going to see the break that we have been given with sin. Then in verse 3, Peter takes a little bit closer look at the old self, that old humanity, the old life that we have been brought out of. And then in verses 4 through 6, he's going to tell us about the suffering and the vindication that come from our break with sin. In the last passage, Peter showed us that the suffering Jesus is also the victorious Jesus. He suffered, but he only suffered once as a payment for sins. And then, rather than staying in the grave, He came back to life in victory over sin and death and Satan. 
And in the back half of that passage, Peter talked about our baptism, this washing with water that we have received, that isn't just about washing dirt away from our bodies, but is about God washing us of our sins and making us into new creations by Jesus' resurrection. And as Peter turns now to a new topic, he isn't leaving that discussion behind. He says in the first verse, since therefore, which shows he's connecting back to what we just said. But like he's done again and again in this letter, he's going to take what he has said about Jesus and show us how it informs the way we live as exiles in this world. And so he first shows us how the decisive suffering and resurrection of Jesus causes all those who are his to break with their sin. Look at verses 1 and 2 with me. Peter says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. The first thing I want you to notice about those verses is that Peter intends them to be a weapon for you. He tells you to arm yourselves. Take up the weapons of war. This ought to remind us of what Peter said in chapter 2, verse 11. He urged us as believers to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. We are in a war. We are in a battle. And just as he did in chapter 2, Peter drives home in this passage that your war, your battle, is not primarily with the people around you. Your war is with your own sin. For all his remarks in this letter about the hostility of the world around us and the way they will revile and malign Christians, Peter never gives us tactics to defeat our enemies, to fight back against the world around us. That's not what he gives us tactics for. Instead, he tells us how we might win them and defeat our own sin. He tells us how we can defeat our own sin, which is waging war against our souls. Arm yourselves against that, he says. Look with me now about how we are to arm ourselves. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. So Peter tells us to arm ourselves, and we arm ourselves to fight against our sin. Peter says that whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And then he shows us the end result of that. So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. This is a perfect definition of holiness. Not living for our own human passions or human lusts, but instead living for the will of God. So how do we get that? What is it that we need to arm ourselves with to cease from sin and live for the will of God? 
Peter says in this verse that we need to arm ourselves with a certain mindset. The ESV says, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Other translations say the same mind, the same attitude, the same resolve. What is that way of thinking? It's a way of thinking that says it is better to suffer than to sin. It is better to suffer than to sin. Or to put it the other way around, sinning is worse than suffering. That is our mindset in our war against sin. Peter begins with a pretty generic statement about Jesus' suffering. He says, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Notice that he's talking about Christ's thinking, but he doesn't tell us anything about what Christ was thinking in his suffering. He doesn't tell us what mindset he had. But Peter assumes that we remember what he said two minutes ago in his letter about all the ways that Jesus approached his suffering. Remember that he has said that Jesus didn't just suffer, but he suffered righteously. He suffered the scorn and mocking of others, and he chose not to retaliate or to give up. Chapter 2 says, Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. This is the mindset Jesus had when he suffered. He looked beyond the immediacy of the moment. He didn't give up or lash out. Instead, Peter says he endured. He considered it better to endure suffering than to sin to try to alleviate that suffering. And Peter tells us he did this because he trusted God and entrusted himself to God. This is the mindset that Jesus had in his suffering, and it's what Peter tells us to arm ourselves with if we want to defeat our sin as it wages war against us. Knowing that helps us to make sense of the following phrase that Peter says. He says, For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Peter is not here teaching some general truth about suffering as if suffering automatically sanctifies us or keeps us holy. For one, he's actually said the opposite of that throughout this letter, that suffering tempts us to sin. He just made a big deal of the fact that when Jesus suffered, when he was reviled, he did not respond by sinning. When he suffered, he overcame temptation and endured the suffering. So Peter isn't proclaiming some type of sanctification by hardship. Instead, he's talking about the mindset that Jesus had when he suffered. He was resolved in his heart and in his mind that it's better to suffer than to sin to alleviate it. In this way, whoever resolves themselves with that same mindset empties sin of its power. 
Sin tempts us to never be uncomfortable. It tempts us to never say no to ourselves. It tells us to avoid all pain, physical and emotional pain, at all costs. Sin tempts us to indulge all our passions and desires whenever they arise. But the mindset of Jesus is different. The mindset of Jesus is to live for the will of God, not for sinful human passions. And in case you are afraid that the will of God is dull and boring, David says to us in Psalm 16, I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And Hebrews 12 tells us about Jesus that for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. So the mindset of Jesus and of the Christian is not to reject joy and pleasures. It's to reject reject cheap joy and fleeting pleasures for the solid joys and eternal pleasures that are found only in God himself. So that's the first way Peter tells us to arm ourselves with the mindset of Christ. Know and resolve in yourself that it is better to endure suffering and difficulty and discomfort than it is to sin. But that's not the only thing Peter means when he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. If that's all that Peter means, then he makes fighting sin nothing more than a mental game, a mental exercise, but it's not that. Peter isn't just declaring an attitude that you need to will in yourself. He is declaring a reality that you need to come into conformity with. Remember when we talked last week about what Peter and Paul say about our baptism. That anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ has been joined to Him, united to Him. And so everything that is Jesus's is also ours. This is what Paul says about it in Romans 6 that we looked at last week. He says, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? We know that our old self was crucified with Him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Peter is saying the same thing here in verse 1. If you trust in Jesus, if you are united to Him, then His suffering is your suffering. His death is your death. In His death, your old self was crucified. You know that your old self was a slave to sin, always obeying human passions and lusts whenever they arose. That person is dead. In saying that we have ceased from sin, Peter is not saying that true Christians never sin. The Christian life is a constant battle with our sin. 1 John 2 says that when we do sin, we have an advocate 
in Jesus. So we are not yet completely rid of the presence of sin in our lives as Christians. But Peter and Paul are both saying that the power of sin in our lives has been broken. You are not a slave to sin anymore. So put on the new self. The new self that lives not for human passions, but for the will of God. Paul actually says this very similar to, similarly to Peter in Romans 6.11 as a summary of that section. He says, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This is reality if you are a Christian. When Peter tells you to arm yourself with Jesus' way of thinking, he isn't telling you to pretend. He isn't telling you to act like something you're not. He is telling you to get real. Get in line with reality. Get in line with who you are and what you are now that you are in Christ. You are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You are not a slave to sin anymore. When you sin, that is when you are not being true to yourself. You belong body and soul, both in life and in death, to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That is your identity. You are the kind of person who lives no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Arm yourself with that identity, Peter says, and live according to it. After Peter tells us about the break with sin that we have had as Christians, he turns to talk a little more in detail about the old self. This is what verse 3 says. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. When Peter talks about doing what the Gentiles want to do, it's clear that he's using Gentiles not to refer to non-Jews, but to refer to unbelievers, those who are not a part of God's new people. We saw this in chapter 2 when he heaped up Old Testament terminology to talk about the church. And then in verse 11, talked about us living among the Gentiles, unbelievers. He's saying there is a certain way of life that is characteristic of unbelievers, of this society that we live in, those who don't trust in Christ, who haven't died to sin and been made alive with Christ. And Peter's going to tell us that that kind of lifestyle is not the kind of lifestyle that we are called to. But before he does, it's important to see that he doesn't just appeal to identity like he did in the first two verses. He appeals to what time it is. And this is where he goes back to what he said at the end of chapter 3. He says, The time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. We've actually seen Peter do this before. In chapter 1, when he introduced the idea of suffering, he used all kinds of references to what time we are living in. And remember, the New Testament writers don't primarily mark time by days or weeks or years. For them, time is all about what Jesus has done. There are three times. There's the time before Jesus' death and resurrection. 
There's the time after Jesus' death and resurrection. And there's the day where Christ will return. Those three markers dominate the way that they talk about time. The authors use various terms to talk about those time periods, but the key is that Jesus' death and resurrection has ushered in a new age. It's not that the old age is completely over, but the new age has come. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, believers are those on whom the end of the age has come. Jesus' resurrection has begun God's new creation. And believers are little inbreakings of that new creation in a lost and dying world. And so Peter says the time is over for you to act like unbelievers. You are no longer slaves to sin. You are new creations who are already participating in the new age. But then he tells us what particularly that unbelieving life looks like. The life of the old self. The old humanity. He says in verse 3 that it is doing what the Gentiles want to do. Living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. We've talked before about how these lists in Scripture are not haphazard or thoughtless. We read that and we might think that Peter just kind of randomly thought up six sins and threw them together in his letter. But a closer look shows that Peter is contrasting holiness, self-control that Christians have, with the indulgences that we had in our old life. Sensuality for us usually has sexual connotations, but the word could also be translated licentiousness. Feeling like you have license to do whatever you want. It sometimes has reference to indulging in sexual acts, but it's actually also used to refer to gluttony and overeating. Passions, or lusts, are those urges that draw you toward sin. Peter here is talking about living your life according to, obeying, every one of those urges. Drunkenness is a pretty easy one. The Greek word literally means overflowing wine, or too much wine. Orgies and drinking party are very closely related in the Greek. Both can refer to groups of people getting together, overindulging in food and drink, and then going out and carrying that indulgence into the streets, as it were. That could just look like being obnoxious, or rioting, or even sexual promiscuity. And then the last term is lawless idolatry. This is not controlling yourself, not restricting yourself in your worship of the one true God, but dabbling in the worship of other false gods and other false religions. All of these terms have one theme in common. Indulgence. Whether it's with food, or with alcohol, or with sex, or with our worship, the picture is people who are following and obeying their every whim and urge. They have no idea how to say no to themselves. Peter is looking around and seeing that this is the spirit of the age that these Christians in 1 Peter are living in. And we have to say it's the spirit of our age too. It's not just that people indulge their desires in our society and culture. 
But people actually think it is wrong if you don't indulge your desires. Self-control, which Peter commends to us in verse 7, is actually viewed by some as a sort of self-harm. You don't have to look any further than movies to see this play out. How many movies have you seen where the main character is fighting with himself or herself against a desire, an urge that they have? Whether it's a desire to cheat on their spouse or kill someone in revenge or disobey their parents. And the climax of the movie, the celebratory moment for the audience, is when they finally give in to that desire. In our culture, your desires are treated as sacred things that must be obeyed, not controlled or curbed by a greater allegiance. And in verse 4, Peter tells us what will happen when we try to suppress those desires, when we fight the old self, the spirit of the age that beckons us to obey our fleshly longings. Look at verse 4 with me. He says, with respect to this, they, meaning the Gentiles or unbelievers that he just mentioned, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. They're surprised, shocked, put off. Your neighbors and co-workers and classmates are surprised when you don't live for human passions, but instead live for the will of God. You don't show up at the drinking parties. You say no thanks after one or two drinks. You are different, and they are surprised. It's not normal as a human to curb your desires and your appetites and to say, no, I want something better than sex or food or alcohol. I want something better than the approval of the people who are asking me to join them. I want the pleasures that are only found in communion with God and walking in His ways. Peter says people around you will be surprised when you do that. And if you read on, they're not just going to be, oh, interesting, surprised. Or why don't you tell me more about that, surprised. That's not going to be the norm. The norm is that they are going to be angry with you when you don't join them in the same flood of debauchery. The text says they will malign you. The word translated malign here is the same word that is used about those who mocked and reviled and derided Jesus on the cross and on his way to the cross. This is what Peter has prepared us for again and again in this letter. People will speak against you. They will mock you. They will say untrue things about you. But remember, especially in this moment, what we just talked about at the beginning of this passage, remember that your battle is not primarily against the people who mock you. Your battle is against the temptation that wells up within you to hate them or to mock them back. It's against the temptation that wells up within you to join them in their sin so that they stop mocking you. That is where your battle is fought as a Christian. When you're trying to live for the will of God instead of human passions, the world around you will treat you like an exile. In those moments, 
you will be tempted to sin to alleviate the pain and alienation you feel, whether by hurting them back or by giving in. Peter says, arm yourself by remembering you are dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Endure in your suffering. Peter ends this section with an encouragement for believers when they are maligned. Read verses 5 and 6 with me. He says, But they, that's those who malign you, they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the Spirit the way God does. Peter says the people who mock and malign you will not go unpunished. There will be a day that Jesus returns. Remember, Peter measures time in this way. The time before Christ's death and resurrection, the time after it, and the time at the end of history when Jesus will return. On that day, those who mocked and abused God's people will stand before His throne of judgment and give an account of all that they have done. And those who trust in Jesus, even though we have not resisted sin the way we ought to, those who trust in Him will see the fruition of the promise that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Instead of condemnation, we will hear those glorious words from the throne, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your Master. I want you to notice that in Matthew 25, where Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, both groups are shocked at what they are hearing. So if you're sitting there and thinking, he is not going to say, well done, good and faithful servant to me, you will be shocked at what God says to you, at the joy that he has at bringing you to himself. That is what Peter is showing us will happen. And when he talks about that day of judgment, Peter uses this common phrasing that he will judge the living and the dead. And it's the mention of the dead that causes Peter to think of the gospel being preached to those who are dead. Now, this is one of those verses like the last two weeks that has several different interpretations. We're not going to work through all of them. We know for sure, though, that Peter is not talking about preaching the gospel to unbelievers who have already died and giving them another chance to repent and trust in Jesus. That's not what he's talking about here. The whole Bible testifies that your decision regarding Christ in this life is final and fixed. One legitimate option for interpretation is that this verse could be talking about Jesus proclaiming the gospel. His victory over sin and death and Satan. At the same time as he did in verse 19 of chapter 3, when he proclaimed to the spirits in prison that Jesus could be proclaiming the gospel to Old Testament believers who have been waiting in the place of the dead for their vindication. The other legitimate option for how to understand this verse is that it could be talking about the fact that the gospel was preached to believers when they were alive, and now they are dead. But they finally are able to see their vindication. 
Whichever of those last two things Peter is referring to, I think both have the same point. Peter is emphasizing to his readers and to us that the gospel is not just a promise for this life. The good that God promises you is not all wrapped up in this life. And the reason this is so important for what Peter has been saying in this passage is that the power of temptation and the power of suffering are both largely dependent on the lie that this life is all there is. That list of sins in verse 3 is all about indulging yourself while you still have time. In Peter's day, they might say, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. In our day, people go around saying, you only live once. Enjoy yourself while you still can. In contrast to both of those, Peter relativizes this life. He keeps calling this life only a little while. He's just said that those people who are participating in that flood of debauchery will soon have to stand before God to be judged for their sins. But for you, if you're a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, you know this life is hard. You will experience the joy of the Lord in this life, but it is mixed with the suffering of saying no to sin and even the suffering of being alienated by the world. But to you, Peter says, though you are judged in the flesh, judged by the people of this world, you will live in the Spirit the way that God does for all of eternity. Back in December, uh, my, my aunt died. She was a Christian, and she lived a life that had a lot of physical suffering. And when my cousin spoke at her funeral, I'll never forget one of the things he said. He said, my mom isn't suffering anymore. The suffering she had in this life is the closest thing my mom will ever experience to hell. Let that set in for a moment in your own life. Christian, the difficulties you now face are but for a moment. When this life is over, there will be no more suffering for you. There will be no more sin or temptation. There is only the fullness of joy that is in the presence of God and the pleasures forevermore that are at His right hand. When this life is hard, when temptation wars against you, when you feel like an exile in this world, arm yourself with the mindset of Christ, who for the joy that was set before Him endured the cross, and is now seated at that joyous right hand of the throne of God. Would you all pray with me? Father, we thank you that you have crucified our old self with Christ. Not because of anything we've done, but because you love us. And that you have given us his resurrection life. We pray that you would give us the resolve, the power, the will to live according to your will and according to that new life you have given us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.